Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hello, my name is Stacy Brightman and I'm the Vice President for LA Opera Connects, which is the Division for Community Engagement and Learning for LA Opera. And today I have three brilliant artists and scholars with me and we're here to talk about this very exciting project that LA Opera has the honor of producing. Uh, coming up soon, The Anonymous Lover or L'Amant Anonyme in French by Joseph Bologna. And it's a one night only event on November 14th at 5 p.m. If I could uh, ask my great guests, could you all just very quickly introduce yourselves? Ariane, let's start with you. My name is Ariane Halou, and I'm the dramaturg on this project. And what's your day job? My day job is freelance writer, researcher, and dramaturg included in that. Wonderful. And we also have Andrew Brady with us. Andrew, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. So Andrew Brady, and I am the principal bassoonist of the Atlanta Symphony. And you have a background with LA Opera and the Colburn School, if I remember correctly, right? Who is our producing partner for this project. Correct. Yeah, I played in a couple productions at LA Opera. And you're a graduate of the Colburn Conservatory, or do I remember that correctly? Yes, yeah. Marvelous. Thank you for being our musician on deck today. And a dear friend, we actually go back many years, Mr. Bruce Lemon Jr. That's right. That's right. We sure do. I'm Bruce Lemon. Bruce Lemon Jr. I'm the director of this piece. I'm also the Associate Artistic Director for Cornerstone Theatre Company and Artistic Director of Watts Village. I also host Unheard LA for KPCC. So I wear uh, many hats around around town. You know, I was about to say, you're making your LA Opera debut with this piece, but that's not actually true. Uh, when did you make your LA Opera debut, Bruce? I don't recall what year it was. It feels like it was so long ago, but it really wasn't. I've only been in LA back again about eight or so years now. So, But I was a, a super, a supernumerary in Thais uh, years ago, um, and it was quite an experience. That was my real introduction to the LA Opera. And prior to that, uh, my only experience was um, working as an ASM underneath the stage at a, at a student production at Juilliard. <laughs> wow, you know, <laughs> there's no escaping from opera. Um, I think that's the big point that this all demonstrates. Well, you know, let's just jump right into this. Bruce, Ariane, here's a big question. Could you introduce us to Joseph Bologna and the anonymous lover? Well, uh, the introduction to Joseph uh, is something that is, his life story is made for the big screen honestly like surprisingly enough the his music which is what brought us all here isn't even like the major claim to fame for him originally uh, he was a, a soldier as well a general fighting in the, in the revolution in france his mother was enslaved on the island of, of guadeloupe and that's where his father and mother met there is speculation about the uh the status of that relationship. But I think when you have a 17 year old slave and a slave owner, there's not much math you need to do there to yeah. figure out what happened. Like, you know, you know what happened there. But despite all that, Joseph's father makes sure he was equipped with the best schooling and training um, and experiences that uh, all the nobility got, um, even though he could never legally really take on the, the status and power that comes with that because he was black. You know, it was it just wasn't possible. He lived quite a life. At some point, our president at the time proclaimed that he was the most accomplished, famous person in Europe. Ariane, I think you could probably give us a more uh, dates and facts-based version, but I, my reaction to him is really, I can't imagine living at a time, like right now it's pretty wild out here, but I can't imagine living at a time where 
the reinstatement of slavery was even a possibility. And a few years after he died, that's what happened in France and on the Isles that um, that he was even from. So to be able to amass such a career as both uh, a soldier and fencer and, and, and a musician, despite all that, um, is pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even going into, I, I could rattle off some dates and facts. I mean, I think it's a pretty incredible story, even without adding that data. To answer the second part of your question, Stacey, as far as an uh, introduction to the work itself, The Anonymous Lover or L'Amont Anonyme, it was the third opera that Joseph Bologna wrote the music for. And it premiered in Paris in 1780. And it's based on a play by um, Madame de Genly, who was a female playwright. So it's really interesting that that's another sort of underrepresented category of public artist in France at the time. And one of the great joys for me of working on this project has been reading her play, learning a bit about her work and, and the other plays that she wrote, which, you know, are not very famous, but are, but are quite good. I mean, I felt reading the anonymous lover that it, it compares, you know, it's just as good as, as anything by her contemporaries, like Beaumarchais, who wrote the marriage of Figaro or Marivaux, who's another contemporary. I mean, I think it, there's a lot in it that's very rich. And yet we don't hear about her because her, you know, as with Joseph Bologna, their works were suppressed because of patriarchy, because of white supremacy even though they were both very famous in their own lifetimes, they have not until recently started to find an audience um, in the sort of afterlife of their creative work. And what's interesting too, is that it's based on this play, but then the libretto was written by someone else and the libretto really kind of um, undoes a lot of the richness of the play. It takes out some of the most interesting backstories and relationships and interactions. One of the things that's wonderful about it is that the, the musical composition does a lot to kind of restore a glimpse into the inner lives of these characters because the music is so expressive and so rich. We're definitely going to get to the music, but if I could ask a a follow-up question. So how did this work survive? And Bruce, now that you are taking over and staging it, what, what is your work and what did you have to do to prepare this piece? Well, a lot of that preparation work was done, has been ongoing and started much earlier. So for example, the preparation of the score, which is being done by a group of musicians in LA called uh, Opera Ritrovata, which means rediscovered opera. It's great, uh, a great name. They've been preparing the score that has been ongoing. The score exists in a manuscript. There's just one copy of it, and it's a little bit incomplete. So this is another thing. You know, if you're going to do a production of, say, The Marriage of Figaro or La Boheme or another one of these very famous pieces, you can walk into a music store and you'll see like eight or 10 different editions on the shelf. And each of those editions will tell you, here are the different variants in the score, in the text. You have something that's ready to work with. You can start staging it and start rehearsing the music the next day if you want to. That's not at all the case with this piece. So the the preparation has been quite intensive and very collaborative from a lot of different members of of the company. So the the score has been prepared. We had um, our amazing music librarian finding another piece from another opera by the same composer to incorporate into this, which was Maestro James Conlon's idea, which was great to kind of showcase, you know, if we're going to be doing this work by Joseph Bologna, we should showcase as much of his work as we can access. We added this aria from a completely different opera into this. 
Bruce and I have been collaborating closely on rewriting the dialogues that are in the opera because it's as an opéra comique or comic, French comic opera, it's made up of spoken dialogues in between the musical set pieces. If LA opera audiences are familiar with pieces like the magic flute, for example, which is structured similarly, it's that kind of thing. So making the dialogue a little less antiquated, a little more accessible. And part of that has been actually restoring some text from the play that it's based on. Thank you. So Bruce, can you grab the baton from here? How are you going to be staging it You know, in this time of safety and health precautions and distancing? How are you doing that? Well, the distance is not something we can run from, nor is the reality of why we have to to keep that distance. You know, um, we are still very much uh, in the depths of a, of a pandemic. So what we're doing is we are going to use the entire theater, the house, the stage, uh, another one of the dance rooms in the building, because we, we can't have an audience inside. Um, so everybody has to watch it at home, which honestly provides a bit of equity as far as who can take in the full experience. We're going to use the whole space and shoot with cameras. I'm not sure how many details I should give forward, but uh, what we have is all the different players um, spread throughout the theater and balcony stages, other rooms, um, picking up angles from across. Since we're using, since we're shooting this digitally to be streamed home, uh, we have different opportunities, you know, like instead of having to project to hit the back of the house, like we don't really have to do that. So like private moments can actually be private moments. Um, we can get in close and we can do that. I don't want to give it all away. I don't want to give it all away. I love that. But I will say, but I will, I will, I will say, we are we are not trying to um, hide from the fact that we have to play at a distance, that people have to wear masks when you're not um, singing or performing, or how many people can be in the space, or um, just the fact that we're all coming together to make this work in general is a fairly big deal, especially at this time. So the people power behind it and like uh, the risk and sacrifice that people make in order to pour into their art and to do so safely. Is really where the where the whole show is. You know, we have the performance on the fourteenth, but before then, the entire spectacle of all the people and the pieces coming together and making this choice to do this is really where the process really shines. Like I'm, I'm really big on on the beauty of the process and the collaborative uh, act that everybody brings in. You know, everybody that comes into the room uh, has a say in how this goes has ownership to the piece that we have we have collectively chosen to do together so yeah so we're going to do it at a distance with our mask on just like you are at home uh, and we're going to send it right to your living rooms to make it a much more intimate experience uh, than you're used to love it andrew you're a rare creature in that you have actually performed some of joseph bologna's music before could you tell us a little bit about that experience? And because this is going to be a, a, an extraordinary discovery for the rest of us. And what piece did you perform before? And what did you discover in that music? Sure. Yeah. So it was about three or four years ago. There's a group in London called Chinake, the Chinake Orchestra. I believe it was the second time that I had gone to play with them. We actually did. I was thinking back and it was the suite from The Anonymous Lover. So, yeah, quite a coincidence. It had such a significance because that orchestra is primarily Black and minority ethnic musicians. So sitting in an orchestra full of people that looked like me, playing this music written by a person that looked like me, it's just something I, you know, you don't really, I never had thought that it could be something that could happen just because growing up 
going through music school, playing in orchestras, I was always, you know, one, either the only black person or one of two or three. And so to like, just be in a group of people with this, even though, you know, there are people from Britain, there are people from Africa, Germany, all over, but there's still this common background that we all kind of share underneath it all. And it, it it's kind of like you sit down and everything kind of just coalesces without you having to do too much. So it was, it was a, an amazing experience. And before that, I'd never really heard of Bologna. So it was a, a great introductory period. How would you describe the music? I mean, first of all, I Baroque and early classical is, that's my, that's my sweet spot. So immediately, you know, I'm kind of playing, I love playing the bass lines, um, kind of Baroque or like leading the bass line and, and, that music is just like perfect for that. And I immediately was drawn to it. And it's just so, it's stylish, it's witty, it's virtuosic. You know, he was writing things that in, uh, informed Mozart's own writing. So I know people probably heard the term when they when they hear Joseph Bologna, they, they usually hear the black Mozart. Um, well, he was doing some things before Mozart. Mozart yeah. heard them and then started incorporating it. He's such a huge figure that isn't really well known, um, but he was doing some really amazing, inventing genres even, the Sinfonia Concertant. He was part of the the, the group of composers that, that formed that. So before Mozart even wrote his Sinfonia Concertant for violin and viola, Joseph Bologna was doing that. And wasn't he also a virtuoso violinist and a fencer and, you know, besides writing opera and kind of an extraordinary human being to encompass all these different kinds of geniuses? I also realized that what I know of the story, and Ariane, correct me if I'm wrong, it almost has a little bit of a Cyrano de Bergerac theme to it. Is is that a strange comparison or am I off kilter about that? No, that's that's pretty close. I would say it's uh, a bit like Cyrano de Bergerac, but with a happier ending. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's a it's very much a classic romantic comedy plot, right? Where there are two people who are clearly meant to be together, but for whatever reason, they can't quite get up the nerve or the uh, the courage to communicate that to each other. Uh, and so the, the drama that unfolds is them mutually coming to this discovery and entering into a new phase of their relationship. In rehearsal yesterday, someone compared it to You've Got Mail, <laughs> classic 90s rom-com. Uh, it's also, I, you know, the Cyrano de Bergerac comparison is very apt as well because that is about letters and somebody writing letters and you don't quite know who's responsible for this gorgeous language that leads the heroine to fall in love. It reminds me too a little bit of Beatrice and Benedict and Much Ado About Nothing um, where they have this sort of like, you know, bantery. They're not, I would say that in this story, Leontine and Valcourt, the two protagonists, they're they're very good friends. So they don't have the hostility that you sometimes see with, with Beatrice and Benedict, but they do have that kind of sort of comfortable banter at some points. They're clearly very, like they have a history and they're very at ease with each other. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the fun of working on this is that it's, a, it's in many ways a, a very joyful story. It has a lot of moments that are, that are poignant uh, and that deal with sort of traumas in the past of some of the characters, but overall it's very optimistic. And I think that's something, I hope that's something that will resonate with audiences in this very chaotic time that we're living through um, to just sort of have this, uh, a bit of escapism, a bit of joy and a bit of hope for a better future. You know, even as you so beautifully described the story, 
I don't know if it really struck me before, but a key theme is barriers, uh, you know, overcoming a barrier, being able to joyfully triumph over a barrier, especially a barrier to love. The, that leads me to ask everyone, do you find any similarities today between Bologna's path 200 years ago and maybe the paths and the challenges today, the barriers uh, that BIPOC artists are facing? Off top, as Andrew pointed out, uh, he was doing a lot of really cool things, a lot of really, really inventive things before the people that you know for it ever got to it. And the only reason that exists is because he was Black. <laughs> it's a fact of the matter. There are a lot of people that have been amazing for a very long time who just didn't get the uh, praise and notoriety or attention that they deserve because of the systems of oppression that we can, can become by every day for BIPOC artists, especially for Black artists. It's, it's great to see his work being brought to the surface. But my question is, all right, so are we going to do that thing that we always do where we find something old and then we keep digging on something old and then we never look at the new that's out there, like the people that he is he's inspired since then or that he can inspire since then? Like we need to get all this work out there so that uh, his life and existence and, and passion and work can be uh, an example and a point of inspiration for other artists that can look at him and see themselves. So what does it mean today and what does it mean to you as an ensemble of artists and as a member of our larger community? You know, I think what you might have just hit on, Bruce, is that a work like this lights the way for other artists, um, diverse artists. Do you have any thoughts on this? Again, what does doing this work mean now and particularly to our artistic community, to you and to our broader community? People can't know what they can be if they can't see it a lot of the time. So this, and especially the way that this being, is being presented and it's gonna be able to be viewed by a much wider audience than come into the hall at this point. And it just provides access to people that um, normally would not receive it. And then they can see themselves in the arts, you know, either singing, composing, um, directing, you know, just to have the visibility of it is so important. Like I said, if you can't see it, then you can't be it. One of the things that it also draws attention to is, um, like you were saying, Bruce, about who comes next, who was inspired by this kind of work. There are other Joseph Bolognes out there, right? There are other artists in music, in, in literature, in, in various fields whose, whose work and contributions are simply not as widely known as they deserve to be because they have never been given the spotlight that they deserve by um, the sort of gatekeepers of both artistic communities and scholarly communities. So I, Stacey, I tripped over your <laughs> question about day job earlier, but the fuller answer is that I'm trained as an academic. Uh, I have a PhD, which is in literature, but my field is kind of at the intersection of literary studies, musicology, and theater history and performance studies. So I have that background with uncovering the work of these artists as well. And one of the things that I uh, was doing early on in the in the process as I was starting to do the research for this project was try to find out kind of who else was out there. I tried to, um, I was very curious, for example, about, you know, whether there was anything in Boulogne's music. I mean, he was, he was educated and trained in Paris, 
but he spent the first 10 years of his life approximately in Guadeloupe. So I was very curious about whether there were any Caribbean influences in his music and just trying to do a sort of cursory search on like composers from the French Caribbean in the 18th and early 19th century. I mean, there was almost nothing there, very little scholarship. And what was there is, you know, within kind of a lot of it was sort of like within the last five or 10 years, there is a wealth of information out there in a lot of fields that, you know, that we've simply lost access to. And so one of the other things I hope will come out of this project, you know, on the one hand, it's amazing that we have this great reach because it's an artistic production and we can, and because it'll be live streamed, we can reach audiences all over the world. But I also hope it will inspire scholars and students and people who are looking, who work on musicology and music history to broaden their horizons as well. uh, And to kind of take the opportunity to look for the voices that have been lost in the history of, uh, of Western music in particular. And there's a, there's a very fraught history there as well. Um, in terms of sort of who's in the canon and who's not. And I, I think it would be great to just open that up as much as possible. You know, something that our music director, our conductor, James Collin, has said frequently, actually in relation to artists and composers who were repressed by the Nazis, is that there are absolutely lost masterworks and the tapestry has been purposely repressed or torn apart. As you say that, as as all of you speak to this, what can we all be doing to restore this more beautiful, interesting music history tradition and help build for the future? You know, is it about seeking out new voices? Is it the role of the scholar? Is it the role of the producer? Is it the role of the publisher? You know, you know it seems that we all have a role to play in getting the truth of genius and, and art. And how can we all have access and engagement with it? Any thoughts about it and, and what we all need to be doing better? Well, it's absolutely a group effort. That's the that's the only way it's going to happen. It's absolutely a group effort. It has to be has to be everybody. The more the more you dig into into history, the more you find out about what you weren't told about the stories that were left out of your lesson plan. And that's not just in music; that's across the board. But in the arts, we have the opportunity to to dig in and find people that have uh, made critiques or statements about the lives that they were living in the time that they were living in the conditions that they were living under that really tell a more full side of the history of our, of the story of us than we're ever going to learn from our history books and a few spare documentaries on the internet. You really have to take the initiative to do that digging. And once you find that information, it's your responsibility to spread that information. It's your responsibility to shine that light and continue lifting up these voices uh, so that we can inspire some more. Any final thoughts, my friends? Anything else that we didn't talk about or that you would love to to speak to? Final thoughts about the opera or Joseph Bologna? Well, I just hope people will see this and be inspired because he, I mean, not only did he write this amazing work, but, you know, he was an amazing violinist, amazing fencer, uh, battalion leader. He was just an incredible person. So I hope people are inspired to learn more about him and seek out more people like him that have not been featured. Yeah, there are tons of podcasts and articles and stuff on the internet that you can uh, dig into to hear more of his story. I encourage you to. 
because uh, there's a lot of really cool information out there. Ariane, anything else that you would want to add or anything we didn't cover today? I just think the music is so wonderful. I know I talked a lot about the text because that's more my area, but I think the music, you know, we haven't heard it sort of fully with the orchestra and the singers. What I've heard from the recordings that are floating out there, um, I just, it's really rich and fun and lovely and I'm excited to hear it come all together and I'm really excited for our audiences to hear it and see it as well I think um, I think it's going to be great I was going to say I'm excited for uh, the moment we do actually get to hear the music being played live because I had the opportunity uh, someone played violin for me uh, in an immersive piece like last week it was just me and this violinist and it was the first time I heard live music in months and i didn't i didn't expect to have such a visceral emotional reaction but i did it just it sent shock waves throughout my body just hearing a person playing their instrument and making these beautiful sounds 20 feet in front of me it was just so i'm i'm excited for that day and to see what it does to everybody just already seeing what it does for people when they're back in these rooms. You know, we're all isolated and uh, and we have varying degrees of how much we go out into the world or see other people. Uh, and then you get in this video conferencing world and it's, and it's kind of awkward. But after the first couple of minutes, people get to talking and communicating like regular people again. And it's like, oh, I forgot I wasn't here by myself. I'm excited for that the levels of that moment to build and build and build as we run into more obstacles and have to solve more problems and things we don't expect happen. And then like really huge monumental things happen while we're in the process of putting this together and, and we're dealing with all of our uh, emotions and energy and how we're going to work together to carry each other through this moment into the next. That's what's really, really exciting about, about this moment. Yeah. Speaking personally, I, I have not been in a room with more than like two people that I'm not directly related to (laughs) in months. So I'm, I'm very excited, weirdly a little apprehensive, (laughs) just because it feels like, you know, it just feels novel all of a sudden. One of the things that, you know, many things have been hard about the last several months, but one of them has been sort of, especially for those of us who work in the arts, like lacking that contact and that collaboration and that interaction. Um, In normal times, I'm singing in a room with 30 other people every single week, right? Uh, And we haven't done that (laughs) since forever. Um, And even though I've been doing some Zoom theater it is. I mean, as as Bruce was saying, there is that there is a sense of community and continuity that develops. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're all like sitting in our individual spaces. So. So on November 14th, we're going to have a joyful shared experience of love triumphing over barriers. And thanks to all of you. Uh, that's something hopeful to look forward to. And I just want to thank you all. Thank you, Andrew, for your beautiful insights. Ariane, Bruce, for this gorgeous work that you're going to give us and share with a really wide audience on the 14th. And for all of you, each of you lighting the way as artists, as our colleagues, for our community and bringing this beautiful work to us. So thank you, my friends, for being the champions that you are. Thank you. Thank you. you. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera.
If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.